Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast, where we like to explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. This is Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon. Katie, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm excited because we have a special guest today. It's, it's always a special day when we have a special guest. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, Brandon. <laughs> um, so maybe I can introduce Please. you. Please. Today, Rob Gordon, no relation, just similar last names. Very, um, very similar. <laughs> identical, some might say. <laughs> but uh, Rob is a friend and colleague of mine, and he his background is in cognitive psychology, and he's teaching a really interesting class this semester. Actually, probably wrapped it up, huh? Yeah, we finished it uh, last week. Okay. And it focuses on brain myths. And Brandon and I got to do a guest lecture mm-hmm. one time on mental health myths and specifically focused on that. And we thought it'd be fun to talk about some of the most common brain myths that are depicted often in movies and fiction, but also just commonly held. And so I thought I'd start off with a quote from philosopher of science, Sir Karl Popper, who said, science must begin with myths and with the criticism of myths. So I agree with Popper. I think this is an important thing. And today we'll focus on the following three myths. The first one is most people only use 10% of their brain power. The second one is human memory works like a tape recorder or video camera and accurately records the events we've experienced. And the third one is you can influence people through the power of subliminal perception. So maybe we just start out how, by asking Rob, how did you get into this topic? Uh, so I had an opportunity to teach a, a class for the honors program at NDSU. So it's sort of a, students across the university who are freshman students in the honors program. Um, and so I was looking for something kind of engaging, um, something that would be interesting to a broad group of students. Um, and uh, so there's sort of several things that influenced this. One is uh, I'm just a huge fan of Mythbusters, like right from the start. I was <laughs> yeah. a big fan of Mythbusters. I love the idea of taking things that are commonly believed and, and, and really digging into them. Um, uh, there's also this great book uh, by Scott Lilienfeld, which uh, um, is really very engaging uh, look at um, popular myths and psychology. Um, and so I was influenced by that and, and thought this would be something that would be a way of sort of engaging students and also getting students to think critically about things they believe or things that they've read about. Um, and so that's sort of how I got into that. That's great. And you said the response has been pretty positive from the students? It's been very positive. I mean, one, one thing that's nice about myths about psychology is that students all know them. Um, they all have opinions about them already. Um, and so it was no trouble to get students to talk about them uh, in class. As soon as I introduced the myth, students had things they wanted to say about them. Um, and, and I've gotten a lot of positive feedback throughout the semester from students, and they, they really enjoyed that experience of talking about these myths and um, sort of challenging what they believe or challenging what their family believes. I've gotten a lot of that. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's been a really fun experience. Have you gotten any reports back of people who told their family members and corrected them about a myth? Or yes. Like that? <laughs> yes, I think, that it, I think it led to some arguments. Oh. Uh, in um, particularly about um, some really commonly held beliefs about psychology or about the brain. So, for example, uh, learning styles is something we oh, talked yeah. about in class that I'm very skeptical about learning styles, uh, evidence supporting um, the effectiveness of, of um, that sort of learning styles approach to education. Um, and I 
had a few students in the class who talked about uh, their experiences talking to parents who are educators, um, and I think there were some arguments about <laughs> about that. Uh, but it sounded like they got a lot out of that actually, and it, it, it was a different sort of interaction than they're used to having with their parents. I think they they enjoyed it. But I did get that feedback. Oh, yeah. that's really interesting. So that's when people say that like they're a visual learner versus an auditory learner and that type of thing. Right. Exactly. That people have these sort of distinct learning styles, and that you can teach them more effectively if you design a curriculum that is sort of best suited to their particular learning, learning style. Um, and there just isn't very good evidence that that's actually the case. Um, and so that's what we talked about in class. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a really widespread one. I've certainly heard that from students and from other professors. So Yeah, we, one thing we talked about each day, when we had this data, we would talk about how prevalent is this myth. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the most prevalent. Um, and it's something which is held even by something like 90% of educators. Oh um, so it's, yeah, it, that one reason we focused on that, that might have been the first or second myth we covered. Um, because it is so commonly held. Oh, how interesting. Well, speaking of 90%, <laughs> I've heard some people, some, that was people a really <laughs> some people think that we don't use 90% of our brain. Is that true, Rob? <laughs> uh, it's not true. So th this actually is the very first myth that we covered in class. Um, and I think it's because I asked students on the very first day of class, I said, what are some common myths? And that was the very first one they said. Um, the idea that we only use 10% of our brain. Um, so there's sort of, we talked about two versions of this myth. There's a strong version and kind of a weaker version. The stronger version is the one that we focused on because I think it's mostly what people mean, which is that there is, that we only have access to 10% of our brain, that the rest of it is this sort of untapped resource. The weaker version is at any one time we're only using 10% of our brain, which is closer to the truth, but also not actually true. Um, so, uh, so no, it's not true. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's good to know. Now, this is something that's come up as recently as Lucy, which I haven't seen, mm -hmm. but Brandon saw it. Yep. And what was the other recent depiction? Um, limitless, I think, is another one where... So in Lucy, I'm forgetting the exact mechanism through which she sort of has the rest of her brain unlocked. I don't... I think... So I, I should say I haven't seen Lucy. Okay. I've dug into it a little bit because of this class. Um... I think there's some sort of drug that she takes. Okay. And same thing in Limitless, yes. I think. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I knew that for Limitless, but I wasn't sure about Lucy. But mm -hmm. yeah, in both of them, what, what you kind of get is is the individual sort of unlocking that whole brain, and, and they're able to do... In Lucy, she actually develops, like, psychokinetic powers, I think, and can, like, I th like telekinesis and sort of stuff. Oh. I yeah, I, if I'm remembering right. Yeah, that's... Th there's this... I, I did show in class this great scene from Lucy where Morgan Freeman is do giving a lecture about what could happen if we could access more than 10% of our brain. Um, and he says, you know, if you could access 20%, you would have uh, like access to and control of your own body, which I don't understand because we already did. <laughs> yeah. um, but that may just be because I haven't seen the movie. I don't understand that. But then he says, if you get about 40%, you could control other people, you could control objects. Um, and then and then beyond that, it's it's staggering what you could do. And I think that's what happens in the movie, yeah. right, is that she, she develops these incredible powers. Yep. Because, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I uh, it, it is interesting. Limitless, too, I think, is sort of the same thing. I don't think there's any, like, psychokinetic or telekinetic mm -hmm. powers in that one, but I think it's sort of, like, really just advanced cognitive skills uh, more so instead of a little less, maybe slightly more believable uh, to more of a general audience, but... Okay. That, that's at least what I'm remembering. It's been a while since I've seen either of them, yeah. 
So it's a, it seems like I get why that would be an interesting hook, like if we could only access the rest of her brain, and mm. yet it's a myth. How do we know that it's not true? Uh, so there's lots of reasons we know it's not true. So um, there's lots of evidence from brain imaging studies, right, that show that there aren't really non-functional parts of the brain. Uh, from brain stimulation studies, we know it's not true. Um, we know it's not true from looking at people who've sustained brain damage, right, that there's almost no part of your brain uh, that could be damaged without you having some sort of deficit that results from it, right? And if 90% of your brain wasn't being used, there should be lots of parts of your brain where if you damage that, it really doesn't affect you, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that's not the case. In fact, um, damage to far less than 90% of your brain can be pretty catastrophic. Mm -hmm. uh, reasons we know it's not true, and probably the best evidence is things like brain imaging studies, where we just know that a huge part of your brain is active at any one time um, for any task that you're doing. Um, we, it also just sort of logical reasons why it doesn't really mm -hmm. make sense either, right? So why would we have evolved this structure that we're only using 10% mm -hmm. of, right? It's, um, it's pretty, having a brain is pretty costly in terms of resources, <laughs> right? It uses something like 20% of the oxygen that we use, even though it's a really small part of our body, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make any sense that we would have this structure, which is incredibly complex and incredibly costly to maintain, but only be using 10% of it. Mm -hmm. um, it. It just doesn't make sense. So from a logical perspective, it doesn't make sense. And then we just know from data that it's just not true. Uh, that's really compelling. So in, in, despite that, people still believe it. And mm -hmm. where does it originally come from? Do you know? Um, so Lilienfeld, I think I got this from Lilienfeld, who, who um, traces this sort of interesting path from um, William James, who's, of course, like one of the key figures in the history of psychology, right, uh, made something which is a, a, a very innocuous statement that um, the average person doesn't uh, fulfill more than a small percentage of his or her um, potential, right, which may be true, right? Um, then there's this uh, book that comes out, a very influential book by uh, Dale Carnegie, right, How to Win Friends and Influence mm -hmm. People, where he says, uh, Professor James used to say, the average man uh, only uh, achieves 10% of his uh, latent ability or something like that, right? So he puts a number on it, sure. and he attaches it to, uh, to this like, key figure in the history of psychology, this respected figure. Um, and I think that's a large part of it. I think it's also the case that when we started learning about the brain, there was a period of time where we actually didn't know very much about what a lot of the regions of the brain were doing. Um, and those were sometimes referred to as silent cortex, which I think reinforced this idea that they're not doing anything, which isn't true. We just didn't really know, and people who were doing the research were pretty modest about what they knew. Um, but I think it sort of fed into that, that belief. Oh, that's super interesting. So mm -hmm. one, one thing I'm wondering about, Rob, I, I can sort of understand why the learning styles myth is perpetuated because mm -hmm. it's kind of like intuitive and you can see how, oh, it's comfortable to think that I can learn better this way. Why does this 10% myth, how, do you have any sense why this is getting perpetuated or why people really like to believe this still? Yeah, we, we talked about this in class and, and uh, I think it's partly the same reason. I think a lot of these myths... Um, persist because they're comforting. Sure. I think this one is comforting in the sense that it suggests that we have this untapped potential, right? Okay. That um, if we could do something, you know, right now we're only able to do so much, but if we could somehow tap into the rest of our brain, 
Like, think of what we could do, right? Sure. So I, I think that's part of it is, I think it's very powerful, this idea that we're capable of doing so much more than we're doing. And uh, and there's so, if there's something we could do to, to tap into that, right, we would be able to, to do so much. Okay. So I, that that's sort of what what we came up with. Yeah, um, no, that makes sense to me. I can buy that. So it's kind of the psychology of why people keep believing things that are untrue. Like, there's something helpful about it, even if the evidence is crystal clear in this case. I mean, you just gave a lot of clear evidence, but people do a lot of things because they're driven by things that feel motivating or good to them. Okay. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we have two other myths. Um, the second one is definitely one that I have heard before. Human memory works like a tape recorder. A little bit of a dated term. <laughs> or a video <laughs> camera. <laughs> I know, I know. I'll explain it to you later. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, actually, now that you saw 13 Reasons Why, right, yeah. you do know what a tape recorder is, and so do many other people. <laughs> that was probably another underlying sort of agenda of the film, was to bring back the tape recorder industry. <laughs> Certainly so. on top of everything else that we talked about. We're actually recording this podcast on a tape. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> We're uh, going old school. The only tape based podcast in America. <laughs> the weird thing is that we're not even going to use the internet. We're just going to send tapes. To yeah, like when you them. subscribe, it's like a monthly, we'll send you a tape <laughs> I think I think this is a good way to go. It's charming. <laughs> yeah. um, back to our myth, or video camera, and accurately records events we've experienced. So I had it we had a huge pause in the middle of that sentence so I went on a tangent so that human <laughs> no that that was my bad human memory works like a tape recorder or video camera and accurately records the events we've experienced so what is this myth all about uh so i mean that captures the myth pretty well mm -hmm. the the myth is that uh, human memory is is sort of extraordinarily accurate it's a faithful recording of what happened so uh, if you have what feels like a very sort of vivid memory of some event in your life, uh, you can assume that that is an accurate representation of what actually happened. So that, that's the myth. Okay, so that, that's the myth, and what is the truth? Uh, so this is actually, you know, I used to teach um, a, a sort of general cognition class. When we talked about memory, this was a key theme I wanted students to take home, which is that uh, memory is, is constructed, right? So the, the act of remembering something is really an act of reconstructing that event and you rely partly on details about what actually happened but you also rely on things like inferences you made at the time inferences you've made since then uh, things like memory uh, other events you've experienced that were similar uh, other information you've learned since that event occurred all of that goes into kind of building a memory and so when you are remembering something you're not playing back a recording of it you are you're making it out of a bunch of different sources um, and it's kind of loosely based on what happened to you, but it's not a faithful representation of what happened. I think this is so interesting because I feel like a lot of people are confident that they're remembering something exactly the way that it happened, you know? And this actually comes up in therapy sometimes when we're asking people to describe an event. And sometimes, so for example, if someone is socially anxious and they're nervous about people how they're going to evaluate them. They might describe an event and say that they told a joke that was unfunny and people were staring at them for a long time. And I kind of, I'm not sure that happened mm -hmm. or if they're just remembering it differently. So it's interesting how I can see in that case how someone's own biases could influence how they remember it. But it's hard to convince people otherwise. Well, yeah, because I think one thing you said there that's key is that, um, I mean, they have a detailed memory, right? Mm -hmm. So people do get this, they feel confident in their memories because they are detailed and they can feel very vivid. 
Um, but neither of those things means that they're accurate. That's interesting and a little discomforting. <laughs> we can't trust our own memories. Well, how do how do we know that this is a myth? So there are, are years of data um, bearing on this issue. So there's lots of evidence that um, people misremember things uh, based on, for example, information that comes after the event. So there's some really simple studies that have shown this. Uh, one of my favorites, just because it's so simple, is a study... Um, this was by Elizabeth Loftus in, uh, I think, the 70s, um, where she showed people a, a video of a car accident, like a very minor car accident. Um, and then afterwards, she asked them a question. She, so she asked, how fast were the cars going? And some, some people, are, uh, she asked, how fast were the cars going when they hit each other or when they contacted each other? And some, she asked, how fast were they going when they smashed into each other? Um, and so the first interesting thing is that their, their estimate of the speed depended on what word was used, right? So if you said smashed into, they thought they were going faster, right? Um, but then later she asked them, do you remember seeing broken glass at the scene afterwards? And people who had heard the word smashed there were twice as likely to say that they saw broken glass, wow. right? Um, so everybody saw the same thing, but some people got this other information later, and that changed what they remembered when they thought back to that, right? So... Um, so that it's a simple sort of memory, and it's not the kind of memory people usually think of when they think of like these really vivid memories, mm -hmm. right? But it's a very simple illustration that our memories are kind of built out of other stuff. Um, the, the studies that I, I like best about this are studies that are really kind of vivid memories, where people um, uh, are remembering things about themselves. Um, there's a particular class of these called flashbulb memories. Um, uh, which are supposed to be these sort of very intense, very vivid, very detailed memories people have. Um, so for my generation, the classic example of flashbulb memory is the Challenger disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, but people remember where they were when they learned about that or they remember seeing it happen. Um, for other generations, it might be like finding out that Kennedy had been shot or 9-11 uh, might be an example. Uh, but things where people feel like I have this very clear memory of this, this moment in my life. Um, there's a great study by Ulrich Neisser about the Challenger disaster where the day after the disaster, he interviewed students and asked them, how did you learn about the disaster? And they told this story about what had happened to them when they learned this. Um, and then two and a half years later, he asked them again. And they all had this kind of vivid memory, right? But he asked them, you know, uh, again, tell me the story of how you learned about this. And they had this vivid memory and it was very detailed, but it was very different than what they said oh, 24 think. hours, right? Sure. So <laughs> that's a great illustration mm -hmm. that sort of having that confidence in your memory and having that vividness in your memory doesn't mean it's accurate. Yeah. Like people change the details. Interesting. So it's so cool as a side note just to see how useful science is in, in determining these things that we feel can be so true and feel so intuitive and that we know. And I've had this experience too. But then you look at data like that study and it's just so clear that that is a misunderstanding of how our own memory works. So that's really cool. Um, do you see this presented in media at all, this kind of myth? Um, so, you know, I've, I've thought about this. I, I, um, there's a, there's one, one example I can think of where it appears like in popular media, like in movies, and it happens a lot, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, that um, it's very common to use flashbacks as sort of a part of the narrative. Um, and there's this implication, right, that if... Um, 
that if if this is even if we know it's somebody's memory, right? That this flashback is a representation of what actually happened, right? Um, and that's a very common way of of letting us as viewers know, like this is this is these earlier events, and now we're seeing those earlier events as they actually occurred, and it helps us understand something that occurred later. Um, but flashbacks are always, are almost always meant to be somebody's memory, mm -hmm. right? And there's very rarely any recognition that what we're really actually seeing here is something that somebody has built over time, a, a representation of what happened, which is kind of loosely based on the facts, but not, not exactly accurate. Yeah, yeah that's very true. The, the other thing that we, <laughs> that we talked about in, in class is evidence that you see of this, not in, not in like movies and TV shows, mm -hmm. but... Just in the way, um, in, 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 you see this in the news quite often, mm -hmm. um, the way that we all sort of um, have this expectation that other people's memories will be accurate. And so if somebody says something that turns out not to be true, we're very quick to assume that they're lying. Mm -hmm. um, and we talked about a few prominent examples of this. You know, Brian Williams losing mm -hmm. his job um, because of this story he told that turned out not to be mm -hmm. true about being in a helicopter that was shot down. Uh, Hillary Clinton uh, had this memory of be coming under fire when she was landing at an airport once. That turned out not to be true. Uh, George W. Bush, uh, for years, told a story about how he had seen uh, the first plane hit uh, the World Trade Center, which isn't oh, wow. true, right? He was in a classroom um, reading to kids when that happened. Um, and we're very quick to assume that all of these people are lying to us. Um, but in every case, you can see how... They're taking, I mean, they may be lying, I don't know, right? <laughs> but they may not be. Mm -hmm. Because you can imagine, so Brian Williams, for example, was certainly in situations where he was in helicopters, and he was in a situation where he saw a helicopter in front of him get shot down, right? And he was in other situations where he was in dangerous uh, situations, right? And you can sort of build that together into a memory, and it might seem very vivid to him. I think my impression is that when Brian Williams was confronted by this, I mean, the evidence was clear that what he was saying wasn't true, and he was confused, right? Mm -hmm. He wasn't, like, he didn't try to cover it up. He, he was like, I don't understand what's happening because I remember this, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's very common. Uh, and it's common that we assume people are lying rather than assuming that maybe people's memory isn't really perfect. Interesting. Yeah, that's a great point because I, I think I remember how harsh people were mm -hmm. with Brian Williams and other people, mm -hmm. and that makes sense to kind of be harsh about if you think someone's being deceptive intentionally, but certainly most of us memories, we know that they're imperfect, but maybe actually we maybe don't have as much documentation as he does, or it's not like in a public arena that we're saying something that we remember and then it can be falsified. So probably day to day we say stuff that isn't true, but it feels true to us. Yeah. So it's not lying, but no one cares as much when you're not like famous. Right. Yeah, we, we talked about this mm -hmm. as an example of why this myth persists. Mm -hmm. I think one reason is that uh, most of our memories don't get checked, mm -hmm. right? They're memories that are about us. They're our memories. Mm -hmm. um, and we believe these things, and no one ever can assess whether or not they're true or not, right? Whereas someone who's a public figure might remember something where we have lots of documentary evidence about it. Mm -hmm. um, or you might experience this in your own life, and I've certainly had this, where... I've, I've told a story about my life, and my brother has a different take on what happened, mm -hmm. right? Um, and probably neither of us is exactly right mm -hmm. <laughs> about what happened, right? Um, but I think most of the time, your experience is you have this memory, it feels very vivid, you're confident about the details, and there's no way to check that. And so you assume you're right. 
so this seems like it has implications for things like uh, criminal justice. So is this one of the reasons that eyewitness testimony is taken? Or how seriously is eyewitness testimony taken in light of this? Yeah, it's taken too seriously, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say. Um, yeah, so there, I don't remember the numbers offhand, but there, mm-hmm. there is data looking at how much weight do juries and judges put on eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony is considered some of the most compelling mm-hmm. evidence in a courtroom by juries and by judges, and particularly the judges ought to know better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But it is compelling, right? If you mm-hmm. hear somebody talk about having seen something um, and they remember a lot of details about it, um, and there's no way to know whether or not those details are right, um, it can be very compelling. And um, so there's, yeah, there, there is a lot of evidence that we take eyewitness, we put too much weight on eyewitness testimony, um, that people's memory is much more fallible than we think. Um, and uh, and that is a real significant problem, I think. Especially with that approach that we're trying to tell if the person's lying or not, rather than seeing mm-hmm. if their memory is accurate, right? It seems like that's, I don't know if that's an approach in eyewitness testimony to kind of uh, attack the character of the person right. as though it's not there, rather than just that any of us, regardless of character, have challenges in our memories. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not a legal expert or anything. So Me either. I, I don't I'm speculating know. based I, on what I've right. seen on TV. <laughs> that's all I can do too. But I can imagine that uh, you know part of the reason that eyewitness testimony is compelling is because you think, well, this person has no motivation to right. to lie, mm-hmm. right? So they must be telling the truth, um, leaving out the possibility they're telling the truth as they remember it, and that their memory is faulty. Yeah, I feel uncomfortable knowing this is a myth, and I even knew this was a myth before, but it makes me, I don't know, there's something uncomfortable about not being able to trust your own memories. I, I think it's a little freeing, because oh. I don't need to worry now. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I don't remember. I don't know. Yeah, I get that. I, I find it disconcerting when I talk about it. I one, yeah. one thing we talked about in class was studies where people have just implanted false memories in other yeah. people, oh, right? Gosh, yeah. And it's, it's not that hard to do, mm-hmm. and you can do that with things that are Bizarre things. You could convince people that when they were a kid, they, they witnessed somebody who was uh, possessed by demons, oh right? Oh, my gosh. Um, it's not that hard to do that, mm-hmm. and that is a bit scary. Yeah, <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so, you have, so this is another one of these myths, too, where it is a little more disconcerting. And why do you have any sense why this one persists? Because this isn't as much as I joke about it being freeing. It actually is really uncomfortable, and yeah. it does have a lot of implications. Uh, for example, with like in the criminal justice system, um, why why do people still believe this? As far as you can, I mean, sort of speculate. Yeah, I, I think sort of for the reason I got into a little bit earlier, which is just that. Well, so I think it's a combination of things. I think part part of it is that. Um, People just in general, not even just with respect to memory, but people in general, I think, tend to confuse confidence with accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, if I'm very confident about my memory, it must be accurate. Yeah. And most of my memories I am very confident about. I'm, and if I take a step back, I'm not, right? Because right. I know <laughs> what the evidence says. But I have to step outside myself a little bit to really see that. Because I feel like, yeah, no, that's definitely what I experienced. Okay. Um, and... Uh, so I think people are very confident, and they, they remember a lot of details, they're confident about those details, and then there's almost no situation in which that's going to be challenged, right? And so it's an illusion that is allowed to persist because you're never seeing the, the evidence that's against it. Okay. Um, I don't know if it has value beyond that. Um, like, 
a lot of the myths we thought, I said this earlier, a lot of the myths we talked about in class, the reason they persist came down ultimately to something like comfort. Sure. <laughs> and this one isn't really, maybe it's comforting, I guess it's comforting to think that I do know my life, yeah. right? Like I understand my life very well. Um, I know who I am and where I came from and why I am the way I am. I guess yeah. it is comforting yeah. actually, now that mm-hmm. I say that. Um, and that's probably why it's disconcerting to think like a lot yeah. of that might not actually be true. So it seems like this, yeah, there might be something adaptive. Like it would be maladaptive if we just didn't trust any of our memories. Yeah. And, I, and that's an exaggeration. We can trust some components of it. It's just, it's not perfectly accurate. And like you said, it's, in some cases, there are just false memories that you can right. put, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Any last thoughts about that myth before we move on to our third one, Rob? Uh, I don't think so. No. All right, let's, cru- let's keep on cruising then. So our third myth that we're going to cover today is this idea that you can influence people through the power of subliminal perception. So uh, anything additional? That's kind of one that sort of sums itself up too, but anything additional yeah. to sort of define that one? Well, yeah, so I, we did have to define this kind of carefully in mm-hmm. class um, as having sort of multiple components. So part sure. of it is that you can present something to somebody in such a way that they're not aware of it. But in addition to that, they also have to be sort of unconsciously able to perceive it. Okay. Right? So some part of them has registered that. Um, and then typically what people mean by this is that they are then influenced by it in some way. Okay. Right? That it exerts typically a pretty powerful influence on them. Um, so that's kind of the full version of it. Because the bits and pieces of this, there might be some evidence for. Okay, sure. It's the full version that is a little bit, where there's, it's not true. Right, that that you that you can present them in such a way, and people will be powerfully influenced by. Okay, sure. So, uh, how do we know that this isn't true? You, we've got little pieces of evidence for the different components, but on the whole, this isn't. We can't do this. Yeah. So, I've been slowly trying to persuade Katie to, uh, you know, give me a little more freedom in the podcast <laughs> since we started it, uh, but it hasn't worked yet. So, I mean, that's one piece of evidence. I wish I could give you some tips. No. I've been playing the podcast backwards, and I noticed okay. that it was saying let Brandon. So you couldn't get that by so me. So it wasn't the sub- I wasn't subliminal. No, it was I too see. obvious. Uh, okay. Try again. Not sophisticated. Rob will tell you how. This okay. is a how-to instruction That's right, that's thing. right. Well, so it might be helpful to talk about sort of the classic example sure. of this, right? Which is sort of where a lot of this came from, I think. Um, which was, uh, there was this book that was written in, like, the 50s, in the late 50s, uh, called Hidden Persuaders. Um and it told a story about this. And this is where I learned about subliminal perception. Not from that book, because I'm not that old. But <laughs> this is the story I heard, right? That there was this marketing consultant who had, um, in movie theaters, in this particular movie theater in New Jersey, I think, had been flashing these, these messages on the screen during the movie um, so quickly that nobody was aware that they were being flashed on the screen. And the messages were, like, urging people to go buy popcorn and go buy Coca-Cola. Um, and then his claim was that scale, sales of both of those things just skyrocketed okay. as a result of these messages. Um, and this was reported in this book. People believed it. Um, later, uh, like five or six years later, he admitted he had made the whole thing. Oh, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> um, that his business was failing and he was just oh, trying to kind of prop no. up his business. <laughs> okay. um, but an interesting thing about, about memory and about psychology in general, I guess, is that getting that in later information that it wasn't true doesn't actually affect very yeah. much how much you believe that original information, right? Um, so so that's sort of a classic example, right, where there's this thing happening, this message you're getting, you're not aware of it, but it's influencing your behavior okay. in a relatively powerful way, right? Um, so in terms of the evidence that it's true or not true, so there is evidence that uh, there's some evidence for subliminal perception, Okay. Right. Um, and a, a 
good example, this is a study in which people um, are shown a word that's presented very, very briefly so that they don't know what the word was. I think they knew there was a word there. Okay. They couldn't tell what it was, right? Um, and then uh, later they're shown a word fragment where they're given like a couple letters of a word and they have to fill in the part that's missing. Um, and they're more likely to fill it in with a word that's related to the word that had been shown. Okay. So if you saw the word butter, and now you see a word fragment, which is the letters B-R, then you might fill it in with bread. Okay. And you're more likely to fill it in with bread if you saw the word butter than if you saw some other word. Sure. Um, so that's a type of subliminal perception, right? Because people didn't know what the word was, and they were influenced by it, but not in a very powerful way. And in order to produce that effect, you needed very, very specific conditions. Okay. Right? There's very few studies that have actually shown this kind of effect because there's a very narrow range of like stimulus durations or intensities that will produce this effect. Okay. Um, and so it's very hard to get it to work. And so we should be skeptical about claims that it's happening during TV shows okay. or movies or backwards music, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's just so hard to actually produce even that very subtle effect. Okay. Um, there's been several other studies that have looked at this um, and have found no evidence for effects of subliminal perception on like decision-making or you know, consumer behavior or you know, that sort of thing. So there's just very little evidence that that's actually a fact. So I find that comforting in this case that this myth isn't true. So that's good to yeah. know. I just want to share my personal feelings <laughs> and how I'm processing this. <laughs> it really is a lot of ups and downs during this podcast. It's our, uh, our new Jedi segment, 80s Feelings. Che checking in with Katie's checking emotions, uh, so, <laughs> which are most important in this right. whole process. Usually. Um, so before we start recording, we were trying to think of fictional examples, and I actually just thought of one. Oh, oh great. Um, Rob, are you a fan of The Office at all, the TV I'm show? I'm a huge fan of The Office. Okay, so, and I know Katie is. So, Michael tries to use this to uh, convince the one woman that he's attractive in his PowerPoint presentation. Oh, at that's one point. right! Oh, he's alternating that. pictures of himself with, like, traditionally attractive <laughs> men with those shirts on oh, really right. quickly, and then I think he just pops up the word sex. At one point. Uh, so, I totally <laughs> forgot about that. That's yeah. right. So... Uh, so at least we know that the myth persists not only in our universe, but the office world as well. So, that, yeah. That's very. That's a great example. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, so, <laughs> I had to share because we were we were trying to think of one, and it, it yeah. popped in. Yes. <laughs> that's a great example. Yeah. So uh, this is another myth. Uh, so this one seems I'm having a harder time trying to think about why this one persists because. It there it sort of just has this very small, quick origin. Yeah. Is it, it's kind of an interesting idea, maybe? Is it perpetuated through stories? Because you can tell kind of a compelling narrative about it, and like, oh, I don't know. I, I'm trying to remember. I recently watched Mr. Robot, and I thought that that maybe contained components of this, but I might be misremembering that. But so, is it just because it's interesting from a narrative perspective that it's kind of one of these ideas where popular culture is facilitating or maintaining the myth? Do you think? So this one, I, I think there's actually several things going okay. on. So there's actually, it has a longer, both a, a longer and more recent history of, of these sorts of claims being made. So some people, and it may have been Lilienfeld as well who made this argument, <clears throat> that part of this myth uh, dates back to like Freudian ideas of the unconscious, oh, okay. right? The sort of powerful unconscious. And the idea that if we could sort of tap into that in some way, kind of like the 10% brain mm -hmm. do, right? That there's this part of us that we don't really have access to, but that can drive us to do things that 
like maybe that we should be doing but aren't, right? Oh, okay. Or things that we shouldn't be doing and somebody wants us to do, right? Oh, okay. um, so the idea of having this powerful unconscious mind that will enable us to do things that consciously we're not able to do, right? Or not able to get ourselves to do, that might be kind of powerful. That makes sense, yeah. There's also, you know, after that, that book in the 50s, there were like books that came out in the 70s talking about advertisers using subliminal depictions of sexual content in order to get people. Okay. Uh, so, uh, there's this famous image of like these ice cubes in a glass, and the ice mm-hmm. cubes are supposed to spell out the word sex. Mm-hmm. I actually have a hard time seeing it, but <laughs> the idea is that that influences people in some way, right? Um, so, I mean, one thing we talked about in, in class, so we, we talked about this in class as well, and tried to come up with some, some explanations. Um, one of them, I think, is that, um, I mean, there's sort of a broader myth or a broader sense by a lot of people that there are powerful forces that are trying to manipulate us, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like this plays into the into that a little sure. bit, right? That these advertisers, for example, are trying to get us to do things against our, our will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're somebody who already believes that, it's probably easier to buy into this myth as well okay. as this sort of covert way that they're trying to do that. Um, so that that doesn't explain why a lot of people buy into mm-hmm. it, but for mm-hmm. some people that's probably true. How prevalent is this myth? I, as far um, as you can tell. You know, I'm trying to remember what the data say on this. Uh, it's not as prevalent as, like, the 10% brain myth sure. or the, um, um, like, learning style, certainly. But I, I, I think it's something like 30 to 40% of people. Okay. I mean, it's a pretty big chunk yeah, of absolutely. people. I mean, the, uh, another reason maybe why this persists um, is that we actually, there's a, lo- there's a big industry that exists based on perpetuating this myth mm-hmm. and profiting off this myth, right? Um, and one reason that that industry is successful is because there is a big audience out there for it, right? So there are you know, people who are struggling with like stopping smoking, uh, who, and there are products that will subliminally get you to stop smoking, right? That's the claim. I, I, when I st- was preparing the, that particular class, I started looking for examples of these, and there's a ton of them. Oh, okay. Um, and you know, for things like weight loss, smoking cessation, uh, constipation, mm-hmm. Um, really weird, including mm-hmm. things like that are like changing physical aspects of your body, right? Making things larger or smaller, right? It, it's really strange, um, but they're all built around this idea that you have this sort of powerful inner force, right? Mm-hmm. That, okay. that we can tap into by listening to this tape or whatever. Right? You know, now that you mentioned that, I have seen clients with um, eating disorder issues, a couple of them who have talked about playing some kind of while they're sleeping. And mm-hmm. I don't know if this is the same kind of thing that's going to make them have a decreased appetite or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, a study by, I think it was Greenwald, who looked into the, the uh, effectiveness of those sorts mm-hmm. of um, programs, um, who did a pretty simple study where they had, uh, I think they had some people listening to a tape that's supposed to boost your memory and one that's supposed to boost your self-esteem. Um, and then half the people in each group were told they were listening to the other tape, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. um, and then they looked to see, they, their measure was really just our self-reported uh, change, right? Has your memory improved or has your uh, self-esteem improved? Which maybe isn't the best way of assessing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they found is that it didn't matter which tape you would actually <laughs> listen to. Right? What mattered was which one you thought you'd listen oh, to. Okay. <laughs> um, so... Uh, that's the only study I've seen that looked at those sorts of things in particular, okay. where you're listening to tapes that have like these hidden subliminal messages, either while you're sleeping or they're like embedded in noise or something. Um, and not surprisingly, they don't seem to be very effective. 
So it's interesting. It could work, but it's due to a placebo effect, right? So, right. Or they might rate that it worked. Yeah, right. I don't know if it actually works. We actually, this led to an interesting <laughs> discussion in class because I said, so, you know, these claims that these companies mm-hmm. are making are false. And somebody in the class raised a good point, which is, well, does that matter? I mean, they, mm-hmm. they say they're going to, you know, improve your self-esteem. And then you listen to the tape and your self-esteem improved. So isn't that enough? <laughs> um which was interesting. And there was a lot of interesting back and forth about that, mm-hmm. about whether or not those count as fraudulent claims, if they're actually, you know, it's having the outcome that they did. Right. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately most of us decided it is actually fraudulent. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like it, because it's not like they're advertising as a placebo. And then everyone right. worked, they're like, right. because of placebo effects, this right. will because help you. Powerful placebo. <laughs> exactly. Yes. But actually, you can listen to a tape about anything, as long as you believe it's the self-esteem. So right. save yourself the money. But right. that's not usually as good for marketers, I don't think. Well, no. <laughs> not so much. We won't be getting those marketing consults now. <laughs> so, too much honesty in that. <laughs> All right. So anything else? That's kind of our last uh, myth. We're kind of running short on time here. So uh, do you have any last closing thoughts about the myths uh, just kind of uh, to leave people with? or? Uh, well, you know, I, I, if people are interested in psychology, they're interested mm-hmm. in the brain, uh, I really encourage people to dig into some of these psychology myths. Uh, either, I mean, Lillianfeld's book is great, but there's other resources, too, to kind of learn about these myths. Um, one thing I liked about this class that I didn't really anticipate is how deep you get into the psychology once you mm-hmm. start digging into the myths. That it's a great way of learning about how the brain works and why we know the things we know about the brain. Um, so for, for people who are just interested in learning more about it, it's a, it's a fun way to kind of dig into that uh, material. Yeah, that makes Very a lot cool. of sense. Yeah, and, and we just... From asking people on Twitter about myths, told them we were oh, going to yeah. do this podcast, there was a ton of interest. So you've inspired a series that we'll yeah. do on myths. <laughs> we'll probably talk about some mental health myths yeah. in the next one. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think I, at least two episodes, maybe a third mm-hmm. one as well. So this That's is great. A, a great jumping off point and mm-hmm. certainly important to talk about because even just with the ones that we have time to cover today, there are a lot of the implications. And these myths uh, really, I mean, to varying levels of severity or, or degrees of severity, impact people's lives. That's so, right. yeah, it's, it is important to to get people thinking about these myths. So, it also gives a good, a great opportunity to look at psychology as a science and how powerful it can be, and how um, how important it is to differentiate from quote unquote common sense or intuition and things like mm-hmm. that. So, absolutely. it's a fun way to talk about it. Oh, absolutely. Do you want to? I I think. I'll probably hold off on my pearl of wisdom for this week. Uh, okay. I, I like to. Uh, I, I think Rob gave a great pearl of wisdom. Yes, basically, I think so. So, it, so I don't. I, I'm already. He kind of usurped my role. I could never it's, top that. It's Rob's pearls of wisdom. It's Rob's pearls of wisdom. <laughs> and uh, and uh, maybe I'll, I'll use the uh, the coming weeks to think of a really good one for the end. Okay, but, sounds uh, good. That's a great idea. Yeah, <laughs> like with when we have our uh, like when we have guests on the Jedi Collins podcast, we usually have a couple of quick questions for them at the end. Do you have we some sure for us today, Katie? Yes. So one thing I know about Rob is that Rob <laughs> likes podcasts, and so I think this might be the first podcast you're on. It is definitely the first podcast. Well, we're honored. Yes, we are very honored. So give us an idea. What are some of your favorite podcasts that you're listening to right now? Yeah. For us podcast lovers. (laughs) I do listen to a lot of podcasts because I listen whenever I'm cooking or whenever I'm working out or doing anything around the house. So uh, most of the podcasts I listen to are are sort of comedy podcasts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, So the 
very first podcast I listened to, which I still love and listen to every week, is the Judge John Hodgman podcast. Oh, awesome. Um, which is both very funny and also contains a lot of wisdom. I yeah, think. Um, it does. So I, I like that one a lot. Um, the comedy ones I listen to most tend to be kind of improv comedy um, podcasts. Um, so I listen to um, Spontaneous Nation uh, with Paul F. Tompkins. Um, one which isn't on anymore, but you can go back and listen to, and which I, I really, really loved is the Dead Authors podcast. I don't know if you've ever heard of that I one. I haven't heard of that one, no. So that one's also Paul F. Tompkins. I'm a big Paul F. Tompkins sure. fan. Um, and he, he uh, played... Um, H.G. Uh, Wells, and the, the idea oh, cool. of the podcast was that he ha- had an actual time machine and would bring authors back uh, who had passed away and interview them about their work, and then the authors were played by comedians who sometimes knew a lot about the authors and sometimes didn't, and okay. were just like inhabiting them, and um, it was it's very fun, um, so I would encourage people to listen to that. Um, the last one I put a plug in for is um, with special guest Lauren Lapkus, uh, which is another kind of... Um, improv one where uh, she brings people on to kind of play the host of a fictional podcast and then she plays the guest of that podcast and she doesn't know what the podcast is going to be about or what her character is until they start recording Um, and that's just really fun to listen to I like those improv ones because they you never know how they're going to come out Mm -hmm. and I like watching people trying to (laughs) solve it as they go along yeah that's really cool that's a really cool premise Mm -hmm. I like that a lot so nothing serious I like a lot of comedy when I'm yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, after a day of talking about brains and myths and things like that <laughs> it's nice to unwind with a little comedic Once you know that's type a, style. your whole life is a lie that you can't remember <laughs> any of it you have to you have to laugh about something <laughs> exactly no. on that note <laughs> perhaps we'll conclude this week thank you very much Rob I yes. think this was super interesting and I learned a lot and hopefully our listeners enjoyed it too yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely thank you yep thank you so much Rob